Have you ever seen a definition for spectator? Well, it's your lucky day. Let me show you one. <laughs> spectator. A spectator is someone who watches but does not participate. Now, last week, if you were here, Pastor Steve started by showing us a picture of a diving board. And he talked about the fact that it, that's a picture for many of us of challenge and risk and, and, and scary thoughts. But the idea is, is that jumping off that high dive, you get in the pool. You can no longer stay on the side of the pool. You got to get in the pool. And he brought that up because we looked at how Jesus sent out 12 of his followers and then eventually 72 of his followers. And the whole idea was is that he was calling them not just to be spectators, but to be participants, to be involved. And today, that's going to continue. And I want to talk to you about another picture as well that I wanted to use right here. In fact, can we put this up here on the screen of this? Uh, okay, this, this is a very important place. This is Bush Stadium in St. Louis. Now, equal opportunity. Here's another baseball stadium just a little north of here called Wrigley Field, okay? By the way, let me just stop and say, as a pastor who is, you know, responsible to shepherd both Cardinal and Cub fans, <laughs> I'm excited how well the Cubs are doing this year, and I could be very happy if you won the World Series. I know the relief that would be after 108 years, but honestly, <laughs> honestly, uh, I'm using this baseball stadium for a reason. Let me explain. There's a story I want to tell you that I can't get out of my mind. Years ago, we put up a picture of a baseball diamond, and for several weeks, we talked about how God wants every person to get out of the stands and onto the field. That his desire and plan for every person that would come after him would be to move around those bases as a growing Christian, to move to first base and become a member of his family by putting their trust in Jesus Christ, to move to second base in a maturity way, and then to move to third base, learning your ministry and how to minister with him, and then home plate to, to discover that he has a mission for this world that he wants you to be a part of. So we show that week after week, and again, I, I was hoping that was being helpful. I just, I, you never know exactly where things go. Well, there was a, a young couple that always sat near the back. This is when we were back in uh, Outer Park Drive. And I would, I, a lot of times got a chance to shake hands with them, got a little bit acquainted with them. I didn't know them super well. But one day, the guy contacts me and says, can I meet with you? I thought that was pretty interesting. So we sit down, and after he got in my office, he says, look, me, let me just cut to the chase. You know, you've been showing that baseball diamond, and you've been asking us where we are on that. He says... I'm not even on the field. I I'm in the stands. He said, I've gone to church all my life. But he said, what it's showing me, what God's been showing me across the ticker of my mind is that I have never turned my life over to Jesus Christ. I have never committed my life fully to him. And that's what he's asking me to do. He said, you know, I've been living with my girlfriend for the last six or seven years, unwilling to commit. I've never been willing to join a church. He said, that day is over. I'm going to get married. I'm going to join this church because I know God's leading me to, and I'm going to learn how to get onto the field. And let me just say that it was such a pure work of God as this guy talked about it. I could tell that he had been thinking uh, very thoughtfully. This was not some kind of, I'm going to do all this for God. This was, God is asking me to do this, and I'm going to obey him. 
And for the last you know, 15 or 16 years, to watch this guy's life, <laughs> it's God's desire for every one of us. So I want to talk to you about that today. And if you haven't been with us, we're in this series in Luke. So I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to pick, off, pick up where Steve left off last week. Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 10 through 17. If you don't know where Luke is in your Bible, it's about three-fourths of the way back, where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, the Gospels. If you didn't bring a Bible, we say this every Sunday, use the one there in the seat rack nearby. It's on page 723. But we want to be first-handers with God's Word. And the message this week is called Feeding the 5,000, Feeding 5,000. And some of you may have heard this account before, maybe you've not, but this is something that God is using to help us understand his plan. And I just want to tell you that it was this very account when I was 15 years old that created chaos in my own life as far as bothering me about where I was at and where God wanted to take me. I'll tell more about that later. But it was actually this miracle that Jesus did. Now, I just want to tell you, this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's found in all, all four Gospels. And uh, there, it, it's Matthew uh, 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, John 6. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But here's what I want you to see today. If you haven't been with us, the, the series sentence uh, we've been saying every week um, is this. Do we have that there? On the screen, it's the very first line. Okay, never mind. So here it is. We want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Remember, the goal is not to be a successful American in God's economy. The goal is to become like Jesus in character, like his son. And so if that's the truth, if that's the case, then here's what I want you to see if you're following along in the notes. Jesus trains his followers to do ministry with him. Jesus trains his followers to do ministry with him. He wants to get you and me in the game. He wants to get us in the pool. He wants to get us on the field. And so in order to do that, he gets us involved. If you've never seen out to the right, I put Luke 640. Here's what it says. I think we can put that one on the screen as well. Um, I speak by faith. The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained, you see that? Fully trained will be like their teacher. Jesus wants to train us to become like him. But it's a training process. It doesn't just happen, you know, by accident. And that's why last week, Steve showed us John 14, 12. Here's another, uh, I think we can put that on the screen as well. John 14, 12 very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. It doesn't necessarily mean that we'll top, you know, the super sensationalism of what he did. It means that because he's gone to his Father, now as he works in and through everyday ordinary people like you and me, they're greater in the total expansion of what can happen on the earth because he's gone to the Father. So he wants us to see that he's training us. What's training mean? If you're following along, training means teaching plus practice. So when Jesus came, he didn't just teach, but he also called people now practice. So he sent out his disciples, says, look, I want to give you a ministry. You've been watching me cast out demons. You've been watching me heal the sick. You've been watching me proclaim the kingdom of God. Now it's your turn. I want you to do it. 
I want you to practice it. And so he sent him out. He says, I'm training you, and the only way you can do that, and Steve taught us last week, when you're in training, you'll often fail. You won't always get it right. That's okay. That's to be expected. It's the only way we learn. It's a vulnerable position. That's why some people go, skip training. I'm not into that. But Jesus goes, it's okay. That's the way you'll learn. That's the way you become like me. So training equals teaching plus practice, watching if you're following along, then doing. Jesus says, watch me, and then now you do it with me. Watch me, now you do it with me. And so Jesus wants to train us to become like him, not just those first disciples, but also you and me. And that's what this guy was getting in my office, was he was, he was understanding that Jesus was pulling him into the game and saying, I'm gonna train you, I'm gonna show you how to do life with me in this world, and I want you to join me. So I wanna read these verses in just a moment, but then, I wanna, uh, then we're gonna pray, because I, I just gotta tell you, um, this passage, if you and I get it, if we'll begin to understand it, it can revolutionize, it can reorder, it can reorient our whole life in a way that we'll never regret. But if we don't get it, we'll miss an opportunity that God doesn't want us to miss. So let's just, uh, let, me, let me read the passage and then I'll pray, sorry. I'm a little anxious to pray, can you tell? Uh, so verse 10, uh, I'll start reading there. Verse 13, by the way, is found in the second gray box. So if you can be ready to read that with me when we get to verse 13. So when the apostles returned, again, from being on that mission trip that God sent them on to do what he had taught them to do, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Um, some of the other gospels fill in some details and say that they were so, there were so many people coming to Jesus, they didn't have time to eat. So Jesus says, let's go on a retreat. Let's get away so you can get some rest. Let's be quiet. Let's withdraw. And notice what happens. Uh, their plan doesn't necessarily unfold like that, but the crowds learned about it and followed him. Some people ran as much as eight miles ahead to be waiting there when their boat landed on shore. So, but notice what happened. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God in other words, when he spoke to him about the king of God, he says, this is what it looks like when God is allowed to be in charge of your life. This is what it looks like when the reign of God is coming to bear right here where you live. This is what it looks like. He taught him that in very practical ways, the parables and different things like that. And he healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. The phrase remote place here is literally wilderness place. Does anybody ever remember in the Old Testament how there was a group of people that traveled in the wilderness for 40 years and God fed them? We're about to see a miracle that not only parallels that, but goes beyond it. He replied, in fact, sorry, it's, uh, this is a verse I asked you to read with me. Join me. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go, <clears throat> unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. Some of the other gospels account say, besides women and children. So there's a crowd probably much bigger than 5,000, but at least 5,000 for sure. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. 
Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. I love that. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. How many disciples did he have? They all had a basket and their basket was full and they never forgot it. Let's pray. Today, Lord, I don't know where each person is that walks into this room or that listens online, but we pray, O oh Lord, that you would feed us from the word of God not only so that we can listen, but so that we can get in the game and be trained by, by you to become like you. For Jesus' sake and for his glory, we pray. Amen. So let's look at this feeding miracle. What I want to do, spend a few minutes looking at the feeding miracle, and then I want to talk about what it looks like to be trained by Jesus in your life and mine, what that would look like if he does the same thing with us. So first thing I want you to notice is, is that Jesus welcomes the crowd, if you're following along, with compassion. Jesus welcomes the crowd with compassion. Notice, uh, I've listed from Mark's gospel in, in chapter six there in that first gray box, uh, this idea. So would you uh, read it along with me out loud? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what compassion is? Compassion is concern for other people's misfortunes. Somebody has said that compassion is uh, mercy, uh, excuse me, uh, compassion means that you're moved to action in some way for someone. Another person has said it this way, compassion means that I have your pain in my heart. It's not just in your heart. It's now in my heart too. Uh, there is a depth of feeling and concern that is beyond just the normal niceties of life. And Jesus when he sees the crowds who had run ahead to ruin the retreat, instead of going, hey, you're interrupting me. Hey, you're irritating me. Hey, please come back at a better time. He welcomes them with compassion. One of the ways that Jesus will work in your life and mine is that he will take the very relationships in our life that sometimes irritate us, or that test us, and he wants to train us in compassion. Now, let me be quick to say this. That does not mean that every need means that you and I have to meet it. Later, he's going to actually dismiss this crowd, so there's boundaries. It doesn't mean that we have to do everything, but it does mean that those times when our knee-jerk reaction is not to be compassionate, he wants to train us to be compassionate. How are you doing in this area? I have a lot of growing to do. You? Second thing is, late in the day, his disciples say, send them away. Late in the day, his disciples say, send them away. Now, please don't have a bad picture of the disciples here. They're not saying, get those jerks out of here. That's not what they're saying, okay? What they're saying is, uh, Lord, there's an unusually large crowd that's here. We're in a remote place. And so the only way that these people are going to get something to eat is if they go where there's actually food available. So I don't know if you've ever been to conferences where depending on how big they are and depending on who's holding the conference, 
a number of times I've been to conferences where sometimes they'll provide the meals and then sometimes they won't. And so then they'll say, lunch on your own. So in a way, what the disciples are proposing is, Lord, this big conference here, let's set it up as lunch on your own. Because we don't have enough. I, was, I went to a Promise Keepers gathering in Boulder, Colorado years ago, and they served 50,000 men in about 40 minutes. I've never forgotten the task that would have been the hours and the days of planning that would have involved. But the point is, is they look at all this and they just go, this is a lot of people, Lord, send them away. I don't know about you, but there's times when there's ministry opportunities in front of me where the way that I want to handle it is say, Lord, either let somebody else take care of it or I don't want to do it. Please send them away. And the Lord goes, I know that's the way you want to solve this situation. I have a better idea. If you're following along, Jesus startles them by saying, you give them something to eat. Now that you send them away, Lord, send them away, and you give them something to eat are completely two different plans. Now they've just gotten back from a very, very successful ministry trip where they've seen the power of God flowing through them. But now they get in a situation where they think, you know, actually, you know, we've done enough of that for now, Lord. But he goes, no, no, I'm still training you. So here we go. This is a chance. This is a chance to practice. You give them something to eat. I've given you my authority. I'm working your life. I'm here to do this with you. You give them something to eat. Have you ever been in a situation where the Lord said something to you, and you might not have said it out loud, but here was your first knee-jerk reaction. What? <laughs> what? I mean, I'm sure they had to be thinking to themselves, I know this isn't the right way to think about this. You're crazy, Lord. This is insane. This is too much. I don't see how this is going to work. And that leads to this next thing, is that they tell Jesus they don't have enough. They tell Jesus in so many words, they don't have enough. They, they explain to him, look, we only have five loaves and two fish. Let me just stop and say this. If you read some commentaries and if you read some people the way that they've read this account, they don't believe this was a miracle. What they believe is that there was a little boy in the crowd that had five loaves and two fish. And so when one of the disciples, after Jesus said, go out and find what we do have as far as resources, came with this little guy, that people were so moved that while they'd been holding back food before in their robes and clothes and stuff like that, finally go, oh my gosh, that's so cute that that little boy would give his lunch. I'll give mine too. That's not what happened, friends. This was a culture they lived from hand to mouth. They had been with Jesus for a long time. They had used up all their resources, and the only one that had anything left was this little guy. And so they find him and say, all we've got here is these five loaves and two fish. Now, one of the Gospels tells us that they weren't just any old kind of loaves. They were barley loaves, which every reader in the first century would have known was food of the poor. Even in England in the 1800s, it was known as the food of the poor. So barley loaves, they were probably these little loaves and probably little sardines. And they basically go, here's that. And in one of the gospels it says, but what is that among so many? One of the other disciples says, look, unless we go by, it take a half year's wages just to give people enough in this crowd for one bite. So we don't have enough. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes once I've told the Lord that I don't have enough, I think that's the end of the story. Lord, surely you wouldn't ask me to do something. I don't have enough. Go find someone who does. But that's not what Jesus does at all. He goes, okay, I'll take what you have. 
I'll start with what you have. Give it to me. And what he says to them, he gives them another way to be involved if you're following along. Jesus says, have the crowd sit down in groups of 50 each. Have the crowds sit down in groups of about 50 each. And so the question becomes is, why is, what's the big deal about that? Well, friends, if, you, if he's been healing people all day, if people have been following him, some of you know, we, we read this in the last couple of weeks, the crowds sometimes were pushing up against him to try and get to him. It was almost crushing. So he says, let's just bring a little order to this right now. You get out among the crowds and say, okay, we're going to have a meal here. I have no idea how it's going to happen, but would you please sit down in groups of 50? So they were able to do that. That m- must have taken a few minutes. Must have taken a while, but they got everybody sitting down, and now everybody's sitting down in the crowds looking towards Jesus and the disciples. And it not only was probably crowd control, but even more, Jesus is so practical because this is probably the fastest way to feed these people. He was able to say to one of his disciples, why don't you go over and handle that group of 50 and that group of 50? Why don't you go over and handle that group of 50, that group of 50? And again, God is a God of order, not of confusion. He may create chaos by what he asks us to do, but it's in order to bring order to our lives in the long run. So notice this, if uh, he he, um, takes the bread and the fish, and he looks heavenward, if you're following along, he looks heavenward, give thanks, and breaks the bread and fish. Now, this is a fascinating picture. Jesus looks heavenward. I was reading this week in John 11 about how Jesus gave thanks and prayed to the Father before he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. And it says, Father, I thank you that you hear me. You always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those listening, that they may know you sent me. And he just, he just, he was giving thanks. Why do we give thanks to God? Not only because we believe he's our ultimate source of supply. Sometimes we think we're our ultimate source of supply, or our boss is, or this business is, or whatever it might be. He's our ultimate source of supply. That's why we can thank him for what he provides. And he started by saying, thank you for what we do have, we give it to you. And then he turned, if you're following along, and he gives, bread and f- he gives the bread and fish to his disciples to give to the people. He gives the bread and fish to the disciples to give to the people. Our version says to distribute to the people. In other words, the idea is, is that they said, okay, we don't have enough, but what we have, we'll give you. Jesus says, I'll take it. He looks up, he gives thanks to the Father. He breaks it. And then he gives it back to them. They go, okay. He says, give it to the others. They go, take it to the others. And something happened in that exchange. When it says that he gave the food to the disciples, the verb there is the imperfect tense, which means he gave and kept giving. Something happens in Jesus' hands. And the disciples keep taking these basketfuls out for people to have some, and they notice that there's enough. There's enough. In fact, there's more than enough. If you're following along, it says that they all ate and were satisfied, and then afterwards, his disciples pick up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. In the wilderness, when God fed the people of Israel manna, they had just enough for the day. When Jesus fed people this day, they had more than enough. And Jesus has a way of providing. 
unlike anyone that you've ever met before. And one of the things he wants to teach us in this account is that he can provide even when the situation seems impossible. So how do he train us? How does he train us to become like him? What are some of the things he wants us to learn from this? First of all, if you're following along, training to do ministry with Jesus means to see and admit our own insufficiency. It means to see and admit our own insufficiency. And I know some of you are saying, how in the world do you spell that super long word? So I want you to see up here on the screen, this is how you spell it, but also this is what the word means. Insufficiency means not having enough, lacking adequate power or resources. I mean, think about it, friends. Have you ever been in a situation where you don't feel enough? You don't have enough? You can't possibly do enough? Have you ever been in those situations where you go, I got an enough problem? I got an insufficiency situation in my life here. The needs are greater than the resources I have. I can't possibly do what God's asking me to do. Have you ever been in that situation? And a lot of us go, I don't want to admit my own insufficiency. Uh, Our whole culture teaches us to avoid that like the plague. Always present yourself strong. Never let them see you sweat. Always be in control. And friends, here's what I just want to tell you. You may be able to be in control of one area of your life, but there'll be another area of your life that'll absolutely humble you and make you realize how powerless you are. You may be able to do great at work, but in relationships at home, it's tough. You may be able to do great at home, but not be able to do the same thing in other places. Friends, all of us, all of us are insufficient. We do not have enough in ourselves to do the supernatural work that Jesus is training us to do. So most of us, when we think about that, just go, end of story. Jesus would never ask me to do something I don't have the power to do. Wrong. He wants us to come to the end of ourselves so that he can begin to do his greatest work. When I was in Iowa as a pastor, I came across this little saying by a French lady named Madame Guyon, which says this, God has a thousand ways where I can see not one. When all my means have reached their end, then his have just begun. I must have said that a thousand times when I was a pastor there in Iowa, and I've thought about it many times since. Friends, here's what I want you to know. If the Lord trains you and me, one of the ways he'll train us is that he will train us to be okay with our insufficiency. What do I mean by that? Look at 2 Corinthians, which is a great book on ministry, by the way, but here's 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. I love how the Apostle Paul writes these words. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. Do we have it there? There we go. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are what, friends? Sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. In other words, when we're doing ministry, it's not like we have any claim on that. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So he wants us to have this ministry, but our sufficiency comes from him. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7. I think about this verse a lot. 
this next verse, but we have this treasure, Jesus Christ, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. And then I shared this with you before, but 2 Corinthians 12 shows how Paul came to these insights. I just want to stop and tell you, the apostle Paul was a world shaker before Christ in ways, and this guy was a standout intellect, this guy was a mover and shaker. And then he meets Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road, and Jesus begins the training process of him. Not to trust in your own smarts, your own cleverness, not to trust in all that you think you can do in your own flesh. He had to help him unlearn that and train him in dependency. So look at 2 Corinthians 12, seven through 10. He said, look, I was caught up to a third heaven experience. I've had incredible revelations. And then there was given to me this thorn in the flesh. Do we have it there, 2 Corinthians 12? But he said to me, so three times he asked God to take away the thorn. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, my insufficiencies, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, paradox here, then I'm the most strong. When I'm weak and I know it, that's when I'm ready to depend on Christ. And friends, that's what he wants to teach you and I. He wants to train us to be consciously dependent upon God, not to trust in our own power, our own smarts, our own resources, even though it'd be easier to do that. He wants to place us in a position of vulnerability. This is why most of us don't want to admit our insufficiencies, is because it feels vulnerable. Think about this. When he calls us to give the first 10% of our income back to him, does anybody feel vulnerable? <laughs> you go, uh, there it goes, right? Probably like the little boy in lunch. If I give it to him, I don't have it anymore. He goes, trust me, I'll not only give it back to you, but I'll give it back to you in a way that's more than you gave to me. What about relationships where someone's hurt us or criticized us or we're sideways? We need to trust him with those. And so he often says, go and reconcile. Go and do everything as far as is possible with you. Be at peace with all men. Does that make you vulnerable? Absolutely. What about volunteering? You know why some of us don't volunteer? We say we don't have the time or because that's going to actually pull on my job or pull on my family. That tension we have to live with, does it make us feel vulnerable? Yes. What about if I volunteer and people criticize it or what if they don't appreciate it? All those things are possible. But we let those... We go, surely Christ wouldn't ask me to be vulnerable. Yes, he will. He regularly tries to set up situations where we feel our insufficiency so that he can be our sufficiency. It's counterintuitive, but that's his way. That's how he trains us. But that's why he gets all the glory. That's why he, can, he, he, he works so powerfully in people that depend on him. Second thing, if you're following along, what I want you to see is that it means to put everything in Jesus' hands and obey him. Training to do ministry with Jesus means to put everything in Jesus' hands and obey him. That guy in my office that day, you know what he understood? I have not put my life or everything he's given me in Jesus' hands. I've kept it for myself. I've done life on my own terms, my own way. I've done dating my way. I've done work my way. I've done church my way. I have not done it Jesus' way. And he's asking me, 
to humble myself in vulnerable, humble honesty and admit my insufficiency so that he can become one. But it, life doesn't change, friends, until we put everything in Jesus' hands. See, once you've put everything in Jesus' hands, then he can do whatever he wants with it, but you're free. But if you're saying, well, I'll give you this, but not this, then it's always a fight. It's always a fight. But if you said, I give you my life, it's not easy for me. And again, like this guy, he was thoughtful. He didn't do that on a fly, on an emotion. He understood that Jesus was asking him to trust him because he was trustworthy. And so what does that look like? What does it look like for you today to put everything? Do you have some things that are making you feel vulnerable that you haven't been willing to put in his hands? Is it a worry? Is it a relationship? Is it a situation? What is it? If you and I will put that in Jesus' hands, friends, those are the moments when things can begin to change. If we're willing to obey him. I mean, I just love this. The boy, the boy could have said, look, I've looked around and five loaves and two fish isn't going to feed everybody, therefore I'm not going to do it. But he goes, I'll give it to you because I know that's the best thing I can do with this. And he does. And the last thing I want you to see in this section is then give to others what he's given you to share then give to others what he's given you to share. When, the, when he gave it back to these people, when he gave it back to the disciples, did they go, hey, I have some food for you. It all came from me. No, they just said, uh, I don't know how to explain this, but here you go. And they just gave what they had. Here's what I want to ask you. What's in your hand that Jesus has given you to share? What's in your hand? You got a decision to make, I do too. Will we give it to Jesus? My wife is helping with the children in this service. And she and I often joke. And she says, Jeff, I, I can't do what you do. And um, I say, I can't do what you do. Like the thought of being in a room of three-year-olds or four-year-olds, she's a preschool teacher. I break out in a cold sweat. And God's shown me that's not necessarily the best use of time because I make their lives miserable. But the point is, is that she says I couldn't be in a group of adults either. And friends, I don't understand all this, but she simply said, what's in my hand is a ministry to children. I'll share it. Um, she tries, she prefers to serve behind the scenes. That's what's in her hand. My mom has fibromyalgia. She used to be a go-getter and now has been limited by that. But she learned what's in my hand is intercessory prayer. Man, my mom texted me and said, I'm praying for you. That's in her hand. But she offered it to the Lord. Friends, I just want to stop and say, I am so thankful that in this church, so many of you have said, I don't think what I have is very much, but I'm going to give it to you, Lord. I'm going to give you my life. And I'm just so powerful to watch the way he's worked in your life. This last week, <clears throat> we met... So a couple of pastors and I met with uh, the mayor <clears throat> to talk about what we might do as a church family in this city with the various needs. And as I listened to him talk about what the needs of this city were, I found myself immediately going, we don't have enough. The needs are bigger than our resources. And I don't know exactly all God's going to lead us to do 
But I want you to know that it starts with you and I looking at what's in our hand and exactly where we are and being willing to say, Lord, use me right here. Train me to do ministry right where I'm at, whether it's work, school, wherever it might be. Show me. I'll give you my life when that happens. So let me just end by saying this. I told you it was this story that I was reading when I was 15. I was, I was downstairs, I was in a bedroom all by myself, away from the family. I was being a good Christian boy, reading my Bible, because I was told that was the thing to do. But honestly, my parents knew Jesus, I only knew about Jesus. I didn't know Jesus. So when I would read the Bible, it was just a lot of information to me, interesting information sometimes. But I finally closed my Bible one night, and it was on this account, this feeding the 5,000, and I just said, I almost like threw up my hands and I said, Lord, I can repeat the details of this story backwards and forwards, but I don't have any idea what this has to do with my life. And so unless you open my eyes to understand your word, I'll never be able to live a Christian life and do what you're calling me to do. Please help me. It's a desperate flare prayer to God. I turned off my light, went to sleep, no fireworks. About a month later, I was in Wisconsin at a conference with one of my high school buddies. And during the morning when they asked us to do our devotions and read our Bibles, it was like God had put stuff in the Bible while I was asleep. All of a sudden, I saw connections to my life and what Christ was trying to show me that I'd never seen before. And I knew it was a miracle. I realized he had heard my insufficiency and answered I'd put my insufficiency in his hands. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I just admitted my weakness to him. And friends, I didn't understand that eight years later, he would call me to be a pastor. But I understand now that the reason why he wanted me to come up against this passage and see that I did not understand it in my own smarts was so that one day, he not only could feed me with the word of God, but he would give me something to share with you, to share with other people. To this day, I don't know why I understand some of the things in the Bible I do, except that maybe it's meant to help and bless someone else and not just me. And when Christ trains us, he trains us from being turned in on ourselves to caring about other people in ways we never did before. And so I can tell you that being a pastor is a regular practice of being insufficient. Even when I was preparing this message, I realized that the farthest I can ever take these words are right here to the edge of your ears. I cannot take them any farther into you. I can't take them into your mind. I can't take them into your heart. But Jesus can. And I pray that God will use all of us in this church to join him in ministry. And what he's asking is, will you place your life in my hands? And will you place what's in your hands in my hands so that I can give it back to you and you can learn to minister in weakness many times, yes, but in dependency on me. Therefore, you will be strong that way in ministry. And so here's a closing question. Lord, train me. It's a prayer, actually. Train me to depend on you to provide for the 5,000. Lord, train me to depend on you to provide for the 5,000. So what is this? What is, why does God want us to know this account? Why did the early church love this story so much? Because they knew that what God was calling them to do, what Jesus was training them to do, he, wherever he guided them, he would provide for them. 
And I don't know what it's going to look like for you personally or for our church collectively to serve Jesus in this next chapter. But I know that the answer is is if we're willing to humbly admit that in and of ourselves, we do not have enough, but we have one who does have enough and who can multiply what we give him to minister to other people. And so what is he saying to you? If you're an unbeliever here today, maybe he's saying, I want you to trust me with your life. I was broken to pieces on the cross so that I could bridge your not enoughness with my enoughness. Maybe that's what he's asking you today and maybe that's a fight in your mind. Maybe you think holding on to it. Friends, look, nothing given to Jesus is ever wasted. But whatever is withheld from Jesus is wasted. Trust him with your life. Maybe you've already trusted him in your life, but you're up against a situation right now that's brought you to a sense of weakness and vulnerability and insufficiency, and he's asking you, would you be willing to admit it and turn to me? There was a dad one time that asked his son if he could move this big rock in the yard, and so the son got down, and he was pushing on it and everything like that, and uh, he says, I can't move it, dad. And he says, have you used all your power to move that rock? And he goes, yes, and it's not enough. He says, no, you haven't. You haven't asked me. And his dad got down alongside of him and they moved that rock together. And you and I can do that too. What's he saying to you? What's he asking you to put in his hands? So this uh, week... I told you that sometimes Jesus teaches and then he, pra- he had his people practice. So this week, man, it was like the devil had his foot on the small of my back. And all I could feel was that I was not enough. That I didn't have enough and that I could not do enough to be the pastor of this church. And I mean, it was a blitz of overwhelming at times. And I realized that Jesus is training me. Training me to go, that's right, devil. That's correct, but that's not the end of the story. Because when I am weak, there's one more thing I can do. And that's freshly put myself back in the hands of the Lord. And he will do more than I could ever do. And that's the lesson for you and me. He can feed 5,000. He can do what seems impossible. He can do more than enough with you and me. Amazing. Let's worship him all week long. Amen. So I want to just pray for you and remind you there's always people down front that'd be glad to pray with you. We're just ordinary people with an extraordinary God. And we have good news to share with a broken world. Who needs to know the same grace? So now, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, wherever they are, if they're in the stands or on the field, help them know exactly where they are. Help them know exactly what you want them to do next. And then give them the courage to admit their own insufficiency and freshly take hold of what life can look like if they'll place their lives in your hands. And as we do this together, make us a church that though we're insufficient in ourselves, we're mighty in God. 
Help us touch this city and have compassion for this city and world. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.